From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Making everyday decisions during the pandemic can feel like a case of whiplash. Wear a mask or not, even if you're vaccinated and gotten the booster. Then there are the moral considerations, too. Looking out for others. It can be confusing, exhausting, and frustrating. As a society, we might need to change how we respond to illness. We'll get a daily risk assessment with two leading medical experts. Then it's only a matter of time before the state's blanketed in snow. But did you know there are actually different types of snowflakes? Plus, the Colorado Symphony is embracing the virtual stage to pursue a new mission of outreach and inclusion. We'll speak with that classical guitarist... Donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car to CPR. I needed a new transmission and a lot of other work. This was a great way to make a large gift. It was a car that we had loved. It was time for it to go on to its next life. It was time for the car to get off the street anyway. I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. And it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call and they came and picked it up. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel near Glenwood Springs. Roughly 62% of the state's population is vaccinated, and now many are getting booster shots. But despite that, everyday choices, going to a party, wearing a mask in the grocery store, seemingly remain part of a risk assessment equation that people have to navigate. Here to hopefully provide some context is Dr. Matthew Winia. He's the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Winia, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Also with us is Dr. Kenlin Q. He's a pulmonary critical care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver. Doctor, welcome back to you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Winia, let's start with you. Risk assessment is something that literally plays out in my head every day. For example, I went to a party last weekend. Everyone had been double vaxxed and many were boosted. Some were even just weeks or months from being COVID positive and had some natural immunity. The party was outside, but I still today find myself counting the days until symptoms begin. And it just feels exhausting. And from the discussion with others there at this party, I'm not alone. Can you give us just a general perspective on this, the the mental anguish that so many of us are still going through nearly two years in? Yeah, I, I mean, I can give you the perspective of saying, it, you know, for folks like you and I, who it sounds like we're both pretty healthy people, we're both well vaccinated, I've been boosted since I'm a healthcare worker as well. And the distress that I feel in making these day-to-day decisions, I can only imagine the stress that someone would feel who had an immune compromising condition. Or someone with small children who, you know, until very recently was unable to to get their kids vaccinated and might be worried about, you know, bringing home an asymptomatic case and infecting their own children. Or someone who lives with someone else in the household who is immune compromised, receiving chemotherapy, an elderly person. Um, You know, I think all of us are making these day-by-day calculations. Uh, There is no risk-free path through this pandemic. And so, you know, we've been forced into having to make these kinds of decisions. And I I think for you and I, it's hard, but for others, it's probably even much harder. 
You mentioned immunocompromised people several times. Should they be top of mind in every decision we make if we aren't immunocompromised? Well, they're certainly in mind. I, you know, I don't know that I can tell everyone what should be top of mind for them. Um, when you get vaccinated, when you get a when you get a booster, you're really doing it for two main reasons, right? One is to protect yourself, um, and we have you know increasingly clear evidence that getting boosters, for example, is very protective of yourself. But the second reason is, of course, because many of us are relatively healthy, and even if we catch a mild case or an asymptomatic case of COVID, we'll be just fine. What we most worry about is that, you know, God forbid I catch that case that is asymptomatic and I don't even realize it, but I go on to infect someone else whom I love in my family who is immune compromised. So I think this is coming up a lot as people, you know, approach the holidays and there will be family get togethers. When you're sitting around the table eating turkey, you can't do that with your mask on. So we are going to have events where we have to decide how many people are going to be in the room and how vaccinated uh, should they be in order to feel comfortable being in the room with grandma. And I think if you ask people out there, there can't help but be this feeling of whiplash as each Mm -hmm. surge takes hold, then wanes, then surges again. Yeah, I think whiplash is one way to put it. I think there's also enormous amounts of disappointment, of frustration, even of anger. You certainly hear that when you speak to people within the healthcare system who, you know, are looking at 80 plus percent of the folks we're seeing come into our hospitals with COVID now are, uh, you know, the relatively few people remaining in the state who are completely unvaccinated. And that's who's showing up at our doorsteps. That is very frustrating. Um, You know, as we this week are looking at implementation of crisis standards of care, because we are so swamped in the healthcare system, we at our health system For example, the national standard is you should have one respiratory technician for every five people you have on a ventilator. Hmm. We currently have one respiratory technician for every 15 people we have on a ventilator. And that is not only not ideal, unsafe for patients, that is not at all ideal for those respiratory technicians also. They are really being crushed by this current wave. Dr. Kenlin Q, I want to bring you into this conversation. Currently, the weekly COVID positivity rate here in Colorado is hovering around 9%. More than half of the state's adult critical care ventilators are currently in use, according to the CDPHE. Give us a medical framework for this discussion before we move on. Strictly speaking, what does the pandemic look like here in Colorado at this time? It looks as bad as it has over the course of the entire pandemic. We have A couple of different things stressing our health system this time around that we didn't have in earlier waves. And that one thing can be boiled down to the human element. We have doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, medics, environmental services, you name it in the hospital, they've endured a year and a half of the stress of this pandemic. And you know, they're breaking, they're quitting, they're taking jobs in other states that pay better. So we have a lot of strains on our hospitals so that our capacity to expand is not what it once was. And you end up, you know, as Dr. Winnie has said, with 
15 to one ratios that should be five to one in our healthcare system. And that puts patients at risk. It puts staff under further stress, which then reiterates this entire cycle. Plus we have all the patients who have done all the right things and delayed care sometimes to their detriment to allow us to care for other patients earlier on in this pandemic who now need to present for care. And that's an additional stressor we didn't have, say, in April of 2020 when everybody just stayed home. With all that said, though, the difference appears to be, from my mind, there are vaccines now. Uh, you know, More than 62% of the state's eligible population is, is currently vaccinated. More are getting booster shots every day. With all of that said, how should Coloradans who are in this population, who have been vaccinated, who may be getting boosters, look at that current situation you just described in Colorado? That's a good question. You know, there's a couple different mindsets one can take when looking at that. One can be angry at the people who haven't gotten vaccinated because you know, if they had gotten vaccinated, I wouldn't have a problem, right? There's That's a natural human reaction. Another way to look at it is with, you know, just frustration, right? I think that that's probably where a lot of people, you know, truly lie, which is I can't control the situation and, you know, I, I feel not happy about it. Um, the other way to, you know, for some of those people to look at it is I'm vaccinated, I'm protected, then chances of a breakthrough infection are low if you're vaccinated and your chances of spreading it are low if you're vaccinated. So, you know, you can look at it that way. And I think that, you know, like I personally fall somewhere between all three of those categories, right? There are times when I'm angry, right? And that anger usually comes out because I have some patient who is immunocompromised, who got their vaccine, got boosted, but they're still on drug X, Y, or Z to help them with their cancer, their transplant, et cetera, who end up in my ICU sick and dying, right? That's, you know, when I get angry because, you know, we failed as a society to protect that person. Usually it's more frustration because it's like, I just want to get out of this mask. I'm not at work and I still have this mask on because I need to protect the people I work with and I need to protect anybody who I don't know is immunocompromised. And sometimes I go, well, I'm vaccinated, I'm protected. You know, I wear my mask, I go to my martial arts class and, you know, everybody else there is of a similar mindset. They wear their mask, they're vaccinated, and we still have a good time. So you can fall into all three of those categories as a Coloradan. And there's, you know, I, you know, it's not my place to say how you're supposed to feel. It's more my place to kind of you know, take care of you if you get sick. Oh, and, and I hear that struggle. And I've heard that from a lot of people, you know, and, and you're on the front lines. You're in, And I hear the struggle that you have with this. And I'm thinking, you know, Dr. Winnie, for example, someone who just wants to go to Costco to pick up some some groceries. I mean, have you experienced something like that? We were like, I'm going to go in here. Do I put on a mask? Do I not put on a mask? How, how does that work? And how should someone approach that? Um, who is part of this population that is considered fully vaccinated and possibly boosted in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, as it turns out, I went to Costco last weekend. Because, um, <laughs> you know, all, the holidays are coming up. It's time for a Costco right, trip. Right. It was very crowded. 
And as my wife and I were, were walking through the aisles, we had our masks on. We've both been vaccinated and boosted. So we felt fairly protected ourselves, um, but we still do have this concern that, you know, you could still pick up and carry this virus. Uh, it's a lower risk, as Dr. Lin Ku just mentioned, but it's not a zero risk. So we wear our masks when we go indoors to a place like that. And as we were walking through, I was noticing, you know, how big the crowd was. And I said out loud to my wife, you know, right now in Colorado, about one in every 48 people has a contagious case of COVID. I wonder how many people in this store right now have a contagious case of COVID. And we happened to be walking by one of those, um, you know, little booths where they give out free samples. And the guy standing at the booth, who had an N95 mask on, by the way, <laughs> said to us, he overheard us talking, and he said, they told us it's 100 people a day. 100 people a day who come into Costco in that store. And are actively contagious which I presume is why he was wearing an N95 mask. I don't know his medical history, but I'll tell you, if, if I thought I was going to be in face-to-face -face contact with hundreds of people over the course of my workday, honestly, right now in Colorado, you know if you see a couple hundred people a day, you're liable to bump into one or two of them who are actively contagious, I would be wearing an N95 mask. I had the same conversation with my son after soccer on Saturday. We went into in and out We started counting. Once we got to 50, I was like, there's at least one person least in one here with them. COVID. <laughs> Dr. Winnie, can you maybe work, work through this with us with maybe some everyday examples of things that, that we do? For example, when I go to the gas station and I pull up next to you know, a, a gas pump and there are cars around and people around, what would you do in that situation, currently speaking, for someone who is fully vaccinated and boosted. I can say I do not put on my mask when I jump out to fill up the tank. And I know, you know, it's very possible the person next to me, you know, is contagious with COVID right now, uh, but we're outdoors. And we know that transmission rates outdoors are not zero, but they are way less than they are when you're indoors. Uh, I think the way to, Dr. Lin Q can probably speak to this better than I, but the way I think of this is that COVID, when you've got it, is a little bit like smoking. And every time you exhale, you're exhaling a little bit of COVID virus like you're exhaling smoke. And that smoke will dissipate pretty quickly if you're in an outdoor environment. If you're in a small enclosed space with a bunch of people who are smoking, the smoke concentrates. So the indoor spaces, to my mind, uh, you know, thinking of it that way, this is largely an aerosol transmitted illness. And so the, the indoor spaces are considerably more risky than outdoors, even if you're standing right next to someone outdoors. That's exactly how I think about it. When I'm outdoors, I also don't put my mask on. In fact, I savor the opportunity to get some fresh Colorado air in my lungs. Um, but the minute I go inside, exactly like that smoke example, it's a beautiful example. You know, somebody smokes, they walk out, the smoke smell still lingers in the air and you can tell somebody was smoking in there. It's kind of the same way with COVID, except for you don't have the telltale smell of the smoke, but the virus will hang in the air for a little bit before it settles out. And so when you're indoors and you don't have great air movement, you know, that's really when you're most at risk. So with that said, keeping the idea of a daily risk assessment in mind, what would you do walking into a restaurant? You know, uh, there are definitely some good restaurants across the state that people want to go have dinner at. 
Yeah, so it depends on the restaurant for me. So if I go in, for example, the In-N-Out ex- um, that we mentioned earlier, my son and I walked in the In-N-Out. We saw that there was like 50-something people standing around, high turnover, lots of people in and out. We're like, we're just going to get this to go. But if we go to a nice restaurant, I think some of the nice restaurants have also realized that it makes for a better dining experience to have people a little more spaced out, which then means there's you know fewer people per square foot of air or cubic foot of air. And if I feel comfortable with the, you know, the person to air ratio, and it's a little different for different people, I'll, I'll sit down inside and eat. Um, you know, I have fortunate enough that our entire family's vaccinated. So our risk profile as a family, you know, gives us a little bit more of a favorable thing. But at the same time, when I walk into that restaurant, I have my mask on until I sit down at the table. You know, when we're done eating, the mask comes back on, recognizing that, you know, you can still get exposed and to get into more complex science, there's a dose of virus that you actually have to be exposed to to get sick. And if you can minimize that, even if you do get a tiny exposure, hopefully being vaccinated, boosted, you won't get sick. So we still try to mitigate some of that when we're out. But it doesn't stop us from going out, but it gives us pause as to where we're going. I have a very similar mindset in terms of selecting the restaurants that we feel are, you know, comfortable going to. There are certainly restaurants that have better airflow as well. And you can sometimes tell that just by looking at the at the ventilation system as you walk in. So I'll I'll feel better if I'm in a, you know, sort of cavernous space with relatively good airflow. I certainly feel better if I'm able to sit near an open window or sit al fresco. That's, you know, preferable if if it's available. And fortunately in Colorado, it's often available. Even even in the dead of winter, we'll get al fresco dining now and again. So we take advantage of those days. Well, that that seems to be here to stay. I've I've heard that restaurants are are definitely on board with that, you know, being outside and, and things like that. I I all of your assessments that you do as medical professionals, it seems like a lot for the general population. And and I'm wondering, it truly seems that those who are unvaccinated, you know, immunocompromised are really bearing this COVID risk. And with so many of the hospitalizations and deaths being from that population of people who are unvaccinated, when does a fully vaccinated boosted individuals say, I'm doing all I can here, you know, uh, and begin to switch from this pandemic type of mindset to a more endemic type of mindset. It, it, are you understanding what I'm, what I'm asking there? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we all on some level need to switch to an endemic mindset because I think this virus is already endemic, right? We've had multiple, multiple waves. We know that coronaviruses are part of our cyclical cold seasons, you know, in the, around the world. And what we just haven't seen before is one of these viruses emerge and become one with humans, come into balance with humans. So there's nothing to say that this virus isn't already endemic and isn't going to be with us forever. It's more a matter of when are we going to get to a point where this virus doesn't kill people doesn't make them extremely sick, right? But again, I think that there's a an ethical right, a moral right to we need to protect each other, not just ourselves. And I think that switching to that endemic, you know, to answer the original question, switching to that endemic mindset needs to start now. Now you have to say, you know, how do I 
live in that world, right? This is endemic, right? We have flu every year. That's endemic. Um, you know, some people wear a mask every flu season. Some countries, whenever they're remotely sick, they wear a mask, right? So I think that we might, as a society, we might need to change how we respond to illness, taking time off work when you feel sick. Um, I'll remember at the beginning of this pandemic, I actually gave a lecture because I happened to randomly have put together a coronavirus talk. Hmm. Long story for another day. But um, <laughs> I get, you know, they asked me to give a lecture at National Jewish. I asked everybody in the room who had come to work sick before. There were about 150 people in the room and there were about 150 hands up, right? So things like that, I think as a society, we probably need to have changed well before we had a pandemic. And now that we have an endemic virus as such, I think it, we need to start thinking about how we live with pandemics, how we live with endemic viruses, and recognize that this is the second pandemic we've had in the last um, 12 years, right? We had H1N1 prior mm -hmm. in 2009, 2010, and that's still with us as well. So we need to really start thinking about how we live with viruses as a society. And I think that that starts now to answer the question. Even though from your own assessment, and Dr. Winia, I want to hear from you as well, even from what we're hearing that things are very, very dire right now, transmission is very, very high, hospitals are overwhelmed, it still seems to me that we are well in a pandemic mindset. Um, does that... I guess what I'm trying to say, there seems to be a disconnect. We should be thinking endemic, but yet we are, from what you are all saying, fully still in a major pandemic crisis mode. Well, I would say within the healthcare system, we are definitely still in a crisis mode. Um, I'm not so sure that that's the case outside of hospitals and health systems. I think a lot of people want so badly to just move on that they have gone ahead and moved on even though they probably ought to still be recognizing that we are, in fact, in a crisis mode. Dr. Winia, thank you so much for your thoughts. Dr. Lin Q, thank you so much for yours. Um, there is so much to think about as the pandemic continues here in Colorado. I appreciate you taking the time to walk through some of those things with us. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. Dr. Matthew Winia is the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a pulmonary critical care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver. When we come back, the science of snowflakes. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You listen to CPR News to hear voices from all over Colorado and the world. And we really want to hear your voice. This is Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. CPR's new app gives you an easy way to help us tell the stories of our time. Download or update your CPR app. In the menu, tap Tell CPR to send a voice message. And you might just hear yourself on the air. The new CPR app, available in the App Store or Google Play. If you're a skier, you love it. If you have to shovel your drive along the front range, maybe not so much. But it's only a matter of time before Colorado is blanketed in snow. 
Sam Ng is an avid snow watcher and an expert in the different kinds of snowflakes that fall to the ground. He's also a professor of meteorology at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. You're actually, you've actually been a, a lover of snow for many decades, I hear. What started your appreciation for snow? Well, um, Nathan, I came over to the States in the early 80s. Uh, I immigrated from Hong Kong, and um, being uh, living in Hong Kong, it's in a tropical area. We don't get any snow. And when I mm. came over um, around six or seven years old, uh, my first experience of of, of a snow of snow was a big snowstorm, uh, over eighteen inches of snow, and it in some places was up to my chest because of the drift. So it was quite the experience. Wow, that is a lot <laughs> a lot of snow. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. So uh, speaking of a lot of snow, the mountains have been getting it for a while, which is typical, but Denver usually gets its first snowfall in October. We're still waiting for that first snowfall. We know climate change has an impact on that, but are there other factors at play here with such a late snowfall? Um, Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people talk about, you know, these uh, large-scale weather patterns that affect Colorado, such as La, uh, La Nina and El Nino. And um, right now, currently, we're in a La Nina trend, which uh, does not promote a lot of snow in the, on the eastern side of the mountain. Um, typically, um, with a La Nina, we te- tend to get more mountain snow and typically, um, you know, farther north, depending on the pattern. But it appears to be uh, setting up that way for this winter. Wasn't there La Nina last year as well or last season as well? Yes, yes, it was. Um, uh, La Nina and El Nino are, you know, these episodes that can go on for, you know, several years sometimes. Mm. So it's not like a, it's not like a seasonal thing. It could be it could occur like over a couple of years. Got it. Can you can you track the changes in accumulation in Colorado over time and say how much snow falls now compared to, say, 20 years ago? I'm assuming there's a difference these days. Yeah, you know, the National Weather Service keeps a good tab on the annual snowfall amount here in Denver, and it goes back all the way to the eighteen uh, late 1800s. Uh, the first record was in, um, first, actually, the whole year record was 18, starting 1882. Um, so they have a really great record of it. And if you look um, in the last, um, you know, 10 plus years, we've been actually in a deficit. The average amount of snowfall we typically get here in Denver, it's uh, uh, 56.5 inches of snow. And um, we've been below that for many uh, seasons with the exception of a few seasons. So so snow rates obviously varies by season, but, but how does the snow here compare to other places across the country? Uh, what would you mean by that? Like the amount of snowfall or just the different types of snow? The different types of snow. We'll get to the different types, but the amount of snowfall, oh. everyone, of course, thinks of Colorado as like the place for snow. Is, oh. is that, you know, true in your mind? Oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, before moving here, I, I thought that too. And uh, now living here for over 15 plus years. Uh, no, that's not, I don't think that's true um, because um, we are on the, 
what we call the lee side of the mountain um, or the eastern slope of the mountain. Um, we have westerly winds, which uh, when wind blows down um, the mountain, typically that doesn't promote um, you know precipitation generation. And actually, there's a warming effect and drying effect. So um, hmm. Denver and the eastern side of the mountains are located in what we call a you know rain shadow area. So we are in a semi-arid climate, actually. Got it. But I do want to talk about snowflakes now as we as we wrap up here. I, I think of them like cutouts, you know, you, you, you make out of paper and no two are alike, but there are actually several different yes. types of snow is, of flakes yes. as well. What, what do they look like? Well, there's really four major types of snow, uh, snowflakes or snow types, uh, as we call it in meteorology. Uh, there are the uh, needle snow snow uh, crystals. There are the plates, which you know, hexagonal plate shape. There's column, and they're the type that you were talking about. That you know, as a little kid, you make them out of you know, cutting right. pieces of paper uh, holes. They're they're called dendrites or stellar dendrites to be more scientific. And is there a type and of the snow that falls? Sorry, is there a type of snow? That, that falls here more than other places like like a that's different than what you're thinking of um no we typically get uh you know a lot of dendrites but sometimes when it gets really cold we tend to get more uh needles and plates because um these type different types of snowflakes they form as a result of different moisture content and different temperature mm-hmm. uh within the environment where they form so they're very sensitive to those two parameters Sam, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. Sam Ng has loved snow ever since he came to the U.S. from Hong Kong. He's a professor of meteorology at Metropolitan State University of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stay with us. The decline of regular music programs in school isn't a new story. Unfortunately, as we heard earlier in the program, neither is the impact of the pandemic on our daily lives. But both have prompted one prominent Colorado organization to rethink its ongoing mission. That's from a recording done last week by the Colorado Symphony. The Canta y Baila Conmigo is not only a concert experience that will be available virtually to the public, but it's also a bilingual early childhood education program that the symphony recently brought to the Adams 14 School District. Joining us now is Jesse Martinez, the symphony's director of community education. Hey, Jesse. Hey, good morning. So programs like this are part of an internal reckoning I, I, I'm, I'm hearing the symphony has seen over the past few years. Tell me how that reckoning came about and why it's so important. Yeah, I think uh, over the past uh, couple of years, we have been kind of uh, looking at uh, the future of live symphonic music and uh, really ju- just identifying from our board of trustees to the organization's uh, administration on like thinking about the future. I think the pandemic also uh, did allow us to kind of think about the future of how we're presenting live symphonic music which enabled us to really think about a new uh, mission statement, which is the future of live symphonic music. And, and including everyone, no matter what background or, or ethnicity, et cetera, things like that? 
Yes. Uh, and so when we're thinking about kind of, uh, you know, the work that we do uh, to present uh, live uh, concerts, uh, you know, we kind of, uh, the Board of Trustees uh, looked at, uh, you know, core values and a new EDI statement, equity, diversity, and inclusivity, that really is uh, a welcome to community to uh, see themselves in better concert hall and in the, uh, in the concert experience. Was there a particular moment when the symphony realized that it was perhaps failing and falling a little bit short on that front? Um, no, I think there's always an evolution. I think as cultural institutions in Denver and across the state, we are looking at ways that we can really think about uh, representing community through our art forms. And I think the symphony was one uh, that really looked at uh, trying to bridge that uh, gap between community and the organization and really present uh, concert experiences that uh, are of community, that celebrate the community and uh, just see them uh, where community can see themselves in our in our seats. Mm. For a long time, you've had a program, Petite Musique, that has introduced young children to the orchestra and its instruments. That's done through musical tellings of children's stories like The Three Little Pigs, for example. But Cante y Baila Conmigo seems to be something really different. How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I have a education committee of, uh, you know, 22 committee members uh, from all spans of the community. And, uh, you know, from uh, schools to, uh, you know, the colleges and universities to uh, former educators as well. And, uh, you know, this conversation started about how, what is the role of the Colorado Symphony in music education? And one of the ways that we thought about kind of bridging our core values, our new mission statement, and also um, our EDI statement was to think about culturally relevant educational programs and the need for them in the community. Uh, and, you know, really providing that uh, opportunity for, you know, music teachers and preschool specifically to gain access to culturally relevant and bicultural educational musical uh, programs. And so this program does that by going to uh, a local school and, 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 and doing things virtually. Can you explain a little bit more what this program actually does? Yeah, the Conti Baila Conmigo program is an ECE music uh, program. It's uh, six to 12 weeks. Uh, we actually piloted uh, the program uh, thanks to the Bowen Family Performing Arts Fund grant that we received during uh, COVID. And we actually did uh, six, uh, 12 weeks of programming in Adams 14 in 10 uh, biliteracy classrooms uh, presenting this uh, music program. It was a 30-minute drop-in once a week for 12 weeks, uh, exposing students to Latin American children's songs, um, and really trying to inspire not only students uh, the love of music, uh, but also uh, their families as well. And we're thinking with, uh, you know, Adams 14, who is a very, uh, has a large um, Spanish-speaking and, and bilingual community, trying to present programming that is relevant and something that uh, really uh, pulls on kind of the family's natural, uh, you know, uh, tuned to music uh, and really trying to think about, um, you know, accessible Latin American children's songs that uh, they all know. That's that's interesting. Is there a hope that this is going to expand beyond Adams 12, 14, or excuse me, Adams 14 and into other school districts? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we were able to do with the, uh, the program was actually uh, arrange and orchestrate music from the Cante Baila Conmigo program for in-school concert. Um, so we were able to do that with the Bowen uh, Fund uh, grant and uh, arrange, and this is what we recorded last Tuesday, was a, an actual, uh, the Cante Baila Conmigo in-school program, concert program, uh, which can then be presented to uh, any school or any community across Colorado. 
And that's kind of like our entry point um, with schools and uh, communities around thinking uh, about, you know, ECE, Latin American children's songs, exposure, uh, like a concert experience like that. And so making a, making a child feel that the orchestra has something in them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, you know, just even thinking about, you know, that exposure to uh, symphonic music and also the uh, instruments mm -hmm. of the orchestra. Many times our families uh, and community don't really see or have opportunities to engage with instruments, uh, musical instruments. And that kind of exposure is what I think could be the thing that uh, sparks somebody's interest in a, a future career in music or just the love of symphonic music in general. Now, another project that sounds really interesting is your Lift Every Voice series, and that's back at the Betcher Concert Hall. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's uh, it was uh, during, uh, you know, our, the pandemic where we worked uh, before, actually before the pandemic, we worked to think about a youth concert. Youth concert is our largest signature program uh, of the education department with bringing over like 25,000 participants in Betcher Concert Hall with up to like 16 concerts scheduled throughout the year. Um, it's a, uh, you know, a, a one hour kind of a concert experience for youth. Uh, and the programming is really inspired to kind of spark the interest of young students around um, the symphony and also just a repertoire of classical music. Um, we got inspired uh, hearing from our education community, uh, committee members in our, our community in general about wanting to think about how we're including a diverse repertoire and composers on the stage. And so Lift Every Voice was an opportunity to really think about us uh, pulling that EDI statement in, in, into practice and actually developing a con youth concert experience that was uh, reflective of community. And, uh, you know, the rep is great. We have contemporary composers as well as, uh, you know, a female composer, uh, African-American, uh, Latino, that all grace the stage uh, through this repertoire of this uplifting music. Um, as well as collaborations with uh, other arts organizations like Cleo Parker Robinson Dance, Fiesta Dance Colorado, and even a spoken word poet, uh, Frankie Latroy. And the idea was really to present. And this, one of those, I want to hear about one of the artists, uh, Omar Thomas, contemporary artist, but I want to first hear a bit from Omar Thomas. Uh, this piece is called Of Our New Day Begun. Let's listen. And that is some powerful music that these kids are going to be hearing. So, what is the what is the result there? What what are some evidence that you are that that, that these are making an impact on kids? Yeah, I mean the the most inspiring thing about the Lift Every Voice is it takes you know these pieces of music that aren't necessarily um, heard and in a culturally relevant way and makes it uh, accessible. And I uh, think uh, thanks to you know uh, the generous support of the Genesee Mountain Foundation, we were able to make it virtual. Um, and provide that last year, but also free this year through our free virtual package that offers the four concerts. But this concert is really, um, it's the theme is really uh, lift your voice or helping students find their voice through the arts and music, along with our curriculum. And uh, we're just excited to offer this kind of uh, repertoire. And the benefits are like, you know, uh, music teachers are seeing the cultural, uh, the Colorado Symphony as a organization that can provide that kind of accessible culturally relevant um, instructional materials 
and experiences for their students in music class. Jesse, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Jesse Martinez. He's the Director of Community Education for the Colorado Symphony. And joining us now is one of the performers who took part in the Cante y Bale Conmigo project, Masakatsu Ito. Masa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Now, it's such an interesting program you took a part uh, took part in. As a solo guitarist, how refreshing was it to be part of a larger collaboration as opposed to doing solo work? <laughs> um, yes, you nailed it. Um, it's always a um, pleasure to uh, collaborate with other instrumentalists and the singers. Um, we tend to... Um, be stuck in our own room, practicing on my own, just grinding hours and hours. And then it's uh, nice to go out and interact with uh, other uh, musicians, that's for sure. You've won numerous international guitar competitions and have performed with the Colorado Symphony on many occasions, but I understand that this time, the guitar piece you played in Cante y Bala Conmigo presented something of a challenge, even for someone as technically accomplished as yourself. How so? Well, um, this was a newly commissioned work and a, a collection of 14 Latin songs, some of them traditional, some of them newly composed by uh, uh, Maddie, who was actually um, part of this uh, um, team of uh, Jesse Martinez's. And um, so, and all the music was um, arranged for this uh, ensemble by David Mulliken, who was the uh, former CSO member who uh, now retired in Mississippi comfortably, and then he did the uh, um, arrangement. And uh, as um, typical with the uh, um, non-guitarist composers, arrangers, uh, they tend to uh, think of us as kind of super human beings, so to, so to speak, and then write uh, extraordinary kind of parts for the guitar where we can do just a little bit. So uh, I have to uh, take the spirit of what David uh, wanted me to do, for the guitarist to do, and then kind of make it a little bit more uh, playable technically. And um, I was asked by uh, Jesse and another team members to actually do uh, editing of the guitar uh, part so that uh, for the uh, future performances, when even I am not involved, somebody else can come in and comfortably uh, play the part and uh, technically sufficient. So uh, that's uh, what I kind of helped out with this uh, program. So I did the uh, editing of the guitar part, but uh, I hope um, um, what I did didn't really um, alter the spirit of what uh, David wanted us to uh, convey as a guitarist. And that's bringing music to children where they are uh, and, and having them experience uh, the love maybe of music that you have, right? How has that felt bringing that to kids in schools? Well, um, guitar is such an interesting instrument. Um, it's sort of kind of casual, and then it can be kind of formal at the same time. So mm. um, uh, this particular ensemble was um, violin, clarinet, uh, double bass, and a percussion, and a guitar, and a singer. And um, 
you look at those um, uh, symphonic instruments, such as a clarinet, basses, and uh, violins, they make it a little bit, not intimidated, but not um, maybe a little bit foreign to uh, their oh. existence. They go back home, and then they have maybe a piano, and then they maybe a uh, ukulele or guitar lying around home, but not very many double basses in the homes and then stuff like that. So uh, I think guitar will kind of lessen, sort of bridge um, the uh, uh, gap, so to speak, to make it a little bit less intimidating. And then, as you know, um, the uh, future of the classical music is always dependent on the future uh, generations of uh, audiences. And uh, this educational program in a broader segment of the society is uh, really crucial to the uh, survival of uh, beings. You also teach music at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, I heard. What was it like trying to teach guitar to students virtually? Boy, uh, that was, yeah, that was a yeah, very strange time, pandemic. And uh, yeah. luckily, this school year, we went back to all uh, in person, um, although we still uh, wear masks and so forth. But, um, yeah, I had some uh, bigger classroom classes where um, all I see is the small little thumbnails of the faces all over the screens and then... Um, Although I, I got to know them personally through emailing and uh, looking at those uh, small uh, thumbnails, I would have had a tough time recognizing any of those people in person if I met them on campus. I would have probably just walked right past them without noticing. So that was the sad part, I would say. As we mentioned earlier, you've won a number of international competitions, and one of the pieces you performed in them is Sonata by Spanish composer Antonio Jose. That was written in 1933, and I understand that there's a fascinating backstory to the piece, beginning with the fact that Antonio Jose was killed by a firing squad? Yes, he was uh, considered a uh, political enemy by General Francisco Franco, unfortunately. So um, he uh, met the same fate that uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, the famous poet, met. So uh, that was right. when he was only 36 years old. What a tragic um, event. What a and, lot. And, and what is the Colorado connection? What is the Colorado connection with this piece, too? Well, um, this piece was uh, um, written for this Spanish guitarist, Regino Sainz de la Massa. And uh, he later uh, headed the uh, Madrid Conservatory in Madrid in the guitar department. And one of the pupils he had was named Ricardo Isnaola. And uh, Ricardo is the first one to actually premiere this sonata after all these years in 
the uh, entire form, first through fourth movement. So that was the very first mm. premiere. Although Regino Sánchez de Massa was who uh, this piece was dedicated originally, but um, um, technical difficulties as well as a political climate um, prohibited him to actually do a formal premiere. And uh, Franco left the, uh, uh, he died actually in uh, 1975. Mm. So Ricardo was studying with uh, Regino in Madrid at the conservatory in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. So by then, the uh, political climate was quite different. So he was able to um, um, give a proper uh, tribute to this piece by uh, premiering it. And Ricardo oh, eventually came to Denver and then became a professor and, and of guitar. And that's the Denver connection. At Masa, uh, thanks so much um, for joining us. Have to end it there, Masa. I apologize. Oh, sorry. Masakatsu <laughs> Ito is a classical guitarist. He recently joined the Colorado Symphony for its recording of Kata y Bailo Conmigo, part of the symphony's bilingual early childhood education program. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.